Hey there, fabulous educators. You're listening to the Letters in Ink blog podcast with me, Lucy G. This is a podcast for teachers where I dish out equal parts inspiration and encouragement as we dive into all things secondary education with the goal of creating an equitable educational experience for every single one of the students we teach. I'm so excited you're here. Let's redefine education together, one letter at a time. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Letters and Ink blog podcast. You're listening to episode 11, where we talk about the history of grading practices in the United States. You know, it's kind of funny because the more I started to reflect on my own teaching practices, I was trying to figure out how do we get here? You know, what science, what research who decided that the A to F scale, the zero to hundred, the percentage GPAs, all of these grading practices that we kind of take for granted, we just use them because that's what we use. I was like, who decided that this was the way to go and what made them decide? I don't know. So I figured if I couldn't answer these questions, if I couldn't explain or justify why I was using these this grading system, then I had no business using it. And, you know, if I can't justify why we use a system other than that's the way things are done, like that's not a good enough reason to continue to do something. So I decided to do some digging because I wanted to get some answers to my questions and also because I'm a little bit of a history nerd. And so what you are about to listen to, this is the next step in a series of posts where I dissect and reconstruct the greeting philosophy that I employ in my classroom. So allow me to share a bit of what I've learned and then I want to hear from you. So join me in the conversation on Insta or in the comments on my blog, lettersandinklog.com. I want to start out with explaining what a grade does. And in my class, I always assumed that a grade of an A meant that a student had mastered all of the content necessary, had all of the skills required to move on to the next level in their educational path. And a B meant they were, yeah, they're prepared. They're, they're good. They're all right. And then a C, oh, they're, they're, they're going, oh, could do better, but they've done enough. And then a D and an F, to me, in my mind, where this student really doesn't have the skills to move forward. So in my head, this is what I'm thinking as I'm, you know, looking at my grade book at the end of a grading period. And as I'm, you know, grading individual assignments throughout the, the course. But the reality is that our grades offer so much more than that, and not in a good way necessarily. So oftentimes, grades are a summary not just of the student's academic achievement, but they're also a summary of that student's tardiness, you know, how many times they've been late to class, uh, whether they've missed instruction because of it or whatever, uh, their ability to turn work in on time. You know, maybe 
there's some sort of extenuating circumstances that keeps kids from turning in work on time, whereas there's other students who will never have a missing assignment or a late assignment in their entire educational career. It also summarizes students' participation in class verbally. It summarizes a student's ability to really just to collect points and play the game of school. You know, kids will take that path of least resistance, and I've done it. I'm sure our students have done it where, you know, what can I do that's going to get me the most points, but also doing the least amount of work? So really, kids are just playing a game. So a grade of an A or a B shows us they're pretty good at collecting points. It also identifies students who are going to show up and do any work that you ask them to do as long as there's a grade involved. You know, so, oh, is this going to count towards our summative grade? Yes. Okay, cool. I'm going to do it. It also, along those lines, allows teachers to exert control over our students. You know, our grades end up being a way to coerce students into performing for us, into giving us certain behaviors and complying with our expectations. And a lower grade is evidence that they did not do that. And it really is a problem because grades are teeny tiny, but insanely powerful gatekeepers that really can determine a student's entire future, academic and otherwise. And it's really kind of scary to me as a teacher to realize the power that my electronic gradebook has when determining a student's future. And, oh man, it is just, it's mind-blowing, right? And the unfortunate thing is, and I will talk about this more in the, the next episode where I dive into implicit bias and explicit bias in grading practices, but our grading points system, it really offers more to students who have resources at home, who have parents home to remind them to finish their homework or to help them out when they get stuck on something. Students who have a great meal and a safe place to sleep at night. Students who have access to technology. And you're almost guaranteed to win the game if you have lots of natural ability but you can at best hope to finish in the middle ground if you have to work really hard to master the skills. It's kind of insane, right? And it gives special shortcuts to students whose families and cultures value compliance to students who speak English as a native language. And let's face it, students who are white and students who are wealthy. So I keep thinking, There has to be a reason that we keep doing this, but spoiler alert, there's really not other than the classic, it's the way it's always been done, even though in actuality, it's not the way it's always been done. (laughs) Oh man, gotta love good old American history here. Okay, so let's get started. I want to start with pre-colonial United States, because as we all know, the United States was, or let's say America, was existing well before the colonists came over and took over and created what we now know as the United States. And 
the current system definitely has its roots in European-centric schooling values. But it's important to acknowledge that there were educational norms and grading norms well before colonialism existed. And in my personal opinion, we're a lot more close to where we should be as, you know, an educational system today. But that's a story for another podcast. Okay, so Gregory Cajete is a Native American educator, and he described education among Native nations as incorporating experiential learning, storytelling, dreaming, and tutoring in their educational systems. And although each nation had specific values, beliefs, and skills that they wanted to pass down to their youngsters, for the most part, there wasn't really grading There wasn't any ranking of students, but there was an evaluation determined by elders over time. You know, students would be around the same people their entire lives, and elders would be consistently evaluating their skill set and their talents and their strengths and desires and use that to guide them through their educational experience. What uh, was interesting to me is that there was this constant feedback loop between pupils and their teachers, and students always had multiple opportunities to learn, practice, and master the skills that were important to their communities. And it was the entire community, not just designated teachers, who were in charge of the many different facets of education of their young people. Of course, Once America became colonized and in the early United States, most children became schooled in buildings that were located in each community. Although the social elites of the colonies tended to send their students overseas to school or to the preparatory schools that were created as feeder schools to Harvard and then later Yale, which were the first two schools in America at the time. And curriculum and rigor across the schools varied widely because it depended on what the students of that community needed to learn. And of course, as you know, only certain students actually, you know, would have had schooling available to them. And so valuations of students' academics were completely varied as well. Grades as we know them today, GPAs, things like that did not exist yet. But if students wanted to attend college, they would sit an exam. It wasn't like, oh, you have a 3.9 GPA? Great, welcome to Harvard, right? It was you sit an oral exam and it is determined then by a committee whether you have earned entrance, whether you've done enough. And students would earn a college degree only after sitting exit exams that demonstrated their intellectual achievement. And it was the same at, you know, the primary schools as well. But there was a central focus on the relationship between a teacher, her pupils, and their parents. Progress across the school year was communicated through oral reports given on home visits. And the success of the system was really dependent on two things, the teacher being a trusted member of the community and 
teachers having a manageable load of students so that they had time to provide meaningful, specific feedback. Oh, man, wouldn't that be a wonderful world to live in? So periodically, instead of, you know, official score in a gradebook, students would sit oral exams and that would give them an official determination of their academic standings. Often, students were ranked and re-ranked in order to motivate them. But even back then, in the 1600s and the 1700s, critics worried that this meant that students were focusing on immediate, instant, specific success at a given moment and not on genuine intellectual development. So Yale ranked its students into categories of intellectual achievement after they sat examinations, but these were not necessarily known to students. And Harvard used labels too, some summa cum laude, magna cum laude, and cum laude to designate special achievement upon graduation. But again, these look nothing like the grading systems that we have in place today. The industrial age is when we really start to see a transition, and there are a few reasons for this. First, we had the Industrial Revolution, right? We have tons of factories popping up everywhere, mass production of all kinds of products. We then have people migrating to the cities, and there's massive amounts of immigration, not to mention child labor laws eventually and compulsory education laws. We also have desegregation. We have Brown versus Board of Education, which really had this huge influx of students crowding schools. And so the detailed personal accounts of individual student progress were really no longer possible. So grammar schools decided to begin awarding percentages for grades for individual courses and requiring a certain amount of credit in order to graduate and earn a diploma. And students also at this time began to sit written exams regularly, and those exams would be put onto report cards that were sent home, although they still did not use letter grades. And this was thanks to the recommendations of Horace Mann, who was an early advocate for education reform. And he believed that students should shine all the time, not just for those oral competitions and rankings. Some other factors started being incorporated into grades, including timeliness and neatness, But these weren't incorporated into any kind of letter or percentage. It was a separate column or piece of the report. So these were skills like timeliness, neatness, uh, um, attendance, all those things. And those were skills that were valued by factories in their workers. And this is also when we start to see the standardization of the school day. So everything that we see today was started in that factory-driven industrial era. Beginning in the early 1900s, a lot of schools started using percentages to rank students on paper. This was done so that teachers could assess higher numbers of students in an easier way, and also because higher learning institutions now needed a truly succinct way to determine whether a prospective student would be academically successful at their school. 
Something interesting to note about this percentage system, though, is that the average score of students was 50%. 50% was the average. Today, that would be an F, right? That would be a failure. But back then, grades above 75% and below 25% were extremely rare. I found this to be like the mind-blowing fact of the podcast, fact of my life (laughs) right here, that something that somehow transformed from this idea of ranking students and, and having an average be truly average halfway between a zero and a hundred was now has now become like a an average is life ruining <laughs> you know to get a 50 percent so this percentage even though it was start being even though it was being used it wasn't succinct enough for colleges so a lot of schools started creating scales so they would assign a word or a letter to different range of ranges of scores. And this was not standardized until about the 1950s. But eventually we came to the accepted 90 to 100 as an A and so on and so forth. Students, though, as they started seeing their work reflected in points on a report card and then reflected on an overall GPA, they figured out how to maximize the points they earned while minimizing effort. So weird that kids would figure that out. And studies conducted during that time period also noted that these grades and this GPA created high levels of anxiety and competition and also encouraged cheating. Again, so weird. I am so surprised by this. So the other big issue that came about as we started seeing GPAs was that it enabled the holding up of the social hierarchy of wealthy white students being able to progress towards academically advanced tracks. They were often easier to get into AP classes or honors classes or what have you for students with resources students who are white, students who are wealthy, um, and poor immigrant students color were often excluded from these advanced tracks, which led to paths of college, regardless of their actual intellectual skill. Because when the teacher is in charge of that GPA, and teachers are not immune to bias, and this is a system that exists in America and exists in America where racism is a very real thing, you know, it was very easy to determine that a student was not worthy of an academically advanced course, regardless of what they actually can do or are capable of. It's really one of the biggest challenges that I have with this grading system. But It turns out, you know, by the mid-1950s, early 1960s, this is when we see the grading system as we know it in place. So where does this leave us? Because even though it's called traditional, it's really only about 70 years old. And through this research that I've done, it really seems that the grading 
philosophy I've used since I started teaching is completely arbitrary. There's no scientific justification behind these systems, and it's really just been attempts to create a standardized grading summary for the purpose of college admittance. And I know that today, if I asked 100 different high school educators how they arrive at each grade for their students, I would get 100 different answers. So as honorable as their intentions may be, this is not standard. This is not equitable. There's no standard student. And it seems to me that our grades have become so far removed from what they were intended to do that they're completely meaningless. There are seven things that I really want to point out as a summary of what I've talked about in this podcast so far. The first one is that the grading system favors a singular Eurocentric philosophy of education, which is out of date and inherently biased. It ignores the rich and valuable belief systems and educational values of a multitude of cultures, including the indigenous ones that predate our country. Number two, the system is not being used as initially intended. So rather than most students receiving C's, most students receive A's and B's, and this waters down true academic exceptionalism, but it also means that there's far more failing grades that can incorporate, far more failing grades that can mean negative academic and professional outcomes for our students than there are passing grades that lead towards positive academic and professional outcomes. The system was built to satisfy the needs and values of an industrial revolutionary United States, but we've evolved as a country and as humans since then, and so have our needs and values evolved as well. Number four, it assumes that there are only two acceptable opportunities for students, college or industry, and that students should only be prepared for one or the other, and that only a certain type of student should be admitted into college preparation programs. Number five, favors students with access to resources and penalizes students without. Number six, teachers who are not immune to bias are ultimately in charge of determining a single letter that can impact a child's entire academic future. Moreover, that letter in a classroom on one side of the country can mean something completely different from the same letter in another side of the country, let alone by two teachers in the same district or even the same school. There is no possible way to effectively, efficiently, and equitably standardize grading and education. And number seven, unless we can dismantle this deeply entrenched and accepted grading system, We as teachers have to figure out how to work within that system so that our grades truly reflect a student's academic skills and not their ability to grab points on their way up the educational ladder. But that's a story for the next episode of the Letters and Ink blog podcast. So before I let you go, I want to know, number one, how do you assign grades? Number two, what benefits and problems do you see with the current accepted grading system? And number three, what questions do you still have? Hit me up on Insta or head on over to my blog. I can't wait to hear from you and I'll see you guys next time. 
All right, everyone. I want to know, what is your main takeaway from this episode? Share this podcast on your Instagram stories and tag at letters underscore and ink or hit me up in my DMs. And don't forget to check out the blog post for this episode on lettersandinkblog.com. And finally, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. I want to leave you all with one final thought. If there's anything that we have learned from the pandemic, it's that our notions of what education is are inequitable and ineffective for the needs of modern students. It's time to rethink and reimagine everything that we know about education. Together, we can transform classroom instruction for the digital age. Thanks for listening and you see you guys next time.